0: It's a blast from the past. This is the Escaping the Cave podcast. I'm your uh, friendly host, Todd. Thanks for clicking in. A little bit of a break there. Resting the voice. Trying to take this a little bit slower so my voice will hold out a little bit longer. I got to thinking about that last segment. That was, boy, that's right. That's dead on. But I talk a lot about the path to empathy on this podcast. I'm trying not to just. You know, condemn people as for being imperfect. We're all imperfect. We are an imperfect species. The thing I got from this guy named Ray that I met while I was hitchhiking. Met him in 2010. Met him out of Slab City in California. He was a religious guy, or claimed to be. <laughs> and he looked at me. We were having some conversation. He just made this offhanded comment about, you know, we're just all imperfect people. And that stuck with me. I don't always remember that. There is that path. And people have limited. Cognitive abilities, limited attention spans, limited time for crying out loud. This is where the thing called data overload comes in. How are people supposed to pick and choose every piece of information, dissect its veracity, and make a decision on every little piece of information that that they come across on a given day, especially with the way the technology and the, the, the flood the torrent, the deluge of information that's hitting us every single second that we have these devices in our hands. You drive yourself crazy. I don't say this enough. I am the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I literally am the luckiest man I know. I have time to do this stuff. I have time to dissect both the psychology and the technical aspects of propaganda. I have time to analyze news to watch and analyze what's coming through cable news channels across Facebook, stuff that I find online. I have, I am immensely lucky. I'm eternally grateful now for that. But I can't even do this. I have all the time in the world to do it, and I can't. How can I expect? How can anyone expect? The average person who has to go to work, raise a family, Engage in the business of life, for Christ's sakes! How can anyone expect those people, normal people, to do this with limited time, limited cognitive abilities, cognitive functions? You know that's that's sort of been by this storyteller uh, foundation that's been laid, sort of been sabotaged in the quest for objective truth. We're storytellers, not truth seekers, so <laughs> we're already sabotaged, handicapped, hamstrung out of the womb, and people have to spend most of their waking, if not all of their waking hours, tending to the business of survival. Data overload is a real thing. Even if you have all the time in the world, there's too much information to sort through. So people can be forgiven for picking a side and running with it. It frees up cognition for other things. It gives people time to focus on other things. Religion serves the same purpose. It does. Religion gives people structure. It gives people a worldview. It gives people purpose. It gives people the why. People constructed this mythology because they needed it. They were probably just tormented. Once this infantile sense of consciousness suddenly sprouted and people started asking, I wonder who the first person was. I would love to meet the first person. The first, I don't know, a primordial man or woman who had a sense of consciousness all of a sudden, like, uh-huh. <laughs> what were they thinking? What was the first thing they thought of? Oh, well, this is the, the parable of the Garden of Eden, right? That's what you atheists miss. That's what you militant atheists miss. You miss the wisdom that's baked into this stuff, the mythology. It's coded wisdom. It's passed down. It's storytelling. Accumulated human wisdom baked into a mythology, baked into a story that people can comprehend, could comprehend 2,000 years ago. Joseph Campbell's brilliant. If you're one of those atheist people, I mean, I don't believe in God either, okay? I I am not a believer, but I get it. I understand what religion is and the purpose that it serves and where it came from. It's not that damn hard. If you think everybody... Deep down inside, thinks of that there was actually a burning bush and a talking snake and a singing bush or whatever the fuck it was. If you think that people actually, literally, deep down inside, believe those things happen, maybe they act like they did, but they know exactly, most people know exactly what this stuff is. It's a handbook, it's a receptacle for coded human acquired wisdom. Shit, people figured out hundreds and thousands of years ago put into parable form to pass down. The end. Get over yourselves. And again, I say all of this <laughs> 10 or 15 years after being one of those people I just told to get over themselves. <sighs> I'm going to get into it's part of the, the the God-devil thing, I think. One of the most frequently used slurs lobbed at me is that I'm arrogant. That I'm, you don't think you're ever wrong. Oh, I have a rebuttal for you. I I, I go back and forth whether or not I want to use it because... Anyway, when I speak of data overload, I mean, again, we're cognitively ill-equipped and drowning. Drowning in useless data. There's an episode back there from 2019... The D-I-K-W pyramid, data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Data at the bottom, the foundation, that's how much is out there. There's so much data. You sort through the data, you get to information. You get semi-useful information, at least useful information. Up from there is knowledge. You put it together into something. There's another step beyond all of that knowledge and its wisdom. Very few people get to that. We are awash down here swimming in the sewage of disconnected data. And it's been made worse by these devices again because there's constant streams of useless, disconnected, deceptive, commercialized data being thrown at us each and every second. Not, not minute, every second of every day. Walter Lippmann was talking about this. Mencken talked about this 100 years ago. With the advent of radio, (laughs) they were talking about, oh my God, people are getting flooded with information. The newspapers, so many newspapers out there. How are people going to keep all this shit straight? They can't. This this hatchet, Edward Bernays in the 20s. You think Bernays? Edward Bernays, the father of propaganda or the father of the public relations industry. Again, I'll tell the story every time I say his name, I imagine. But he literally coined the phrase public relation. Using that term literally, properly, he also literally proper use, basically, to, not basically. He literally took the word propaganda and rebranded it public relations. Literally, do you think of him doing that in the 1920s, the advent and the rise of radio, electronic communications? Do you think that was a coincidence? I mean, he used the stuff from world. He saw what happened in World War One. How the government used propaganda to build public support for entering the war in Europe. And he, well, we can use this for other shit, man. We don't have to use it for war. We can sell shit this way. Politics, right? He saw it as as, as a noble thing. Building public opinion. Crafting proper, right? Correct public opinion based on these, these elites up here. These altruistic elites. That's a better word. Who only had the public's best, best interest at heart. See how that went. Anyway, useless data. Data overload. Personally, I still see myself as a truth seeker. Of course I do. We all do. <laughs> I don't know if I want to run down this. I may just edit this part out. But it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious anyway, I guess. My thoughts have increasingly been toward, uh, to be blunt, to become an anti-woke propagandist myself. I planted my flag. I have an episode back there that says the one where Todd plants his flag back in, I think, uh, November, October, November. Just taking off the mask and doing it, right? Even away from the propaganda material. Just go. Why not? I mean, (laughs) if it's a hopeless endeavor anyway. And that's why. The the why is simple, and it's right there. I just said it. The hopelessness. Do it out of clear self-interest as well. At least that's honest and genuine, right? At least that has a goal. An achievable, maybe, goal. Self-interest? Something to fight for? Instead of futility? At least doing something useful by campaigning against something with my voice. It's kind of what I do. I find something bad that I don't like. I mean, I used to be the Tea Party. used to be George W. Bush. And now it's become this wokest... Plague, infestation, insurgency. I believe in free speech and free thought. Anyway, the key word in that last paragraph was hopelessness. Feeling waves of hopelessness for years. Didn't want to admit that an anti-propaganda campaign is futile. The stuff that I'm talking about right here, as far as self-awareness and metacognition, it could work. It's the only thing that can work. Is it gonna? Really, if I'm being honest, I don't know that I have any hope there. Other than, why am I doing it? Just to say it. Just so I can go back, maybe in 20 years, and say, told you. Maybe that's why I'm doing it. I don't know, but I don't have. I have virtually zero hope that any of this material is going to make one iota of difference. I Go back to that the podcast, maybe one hundred and nineteen or whatever it was when I was talking about why I've lost the motivation to do these podcasts. There's no hope. What good am I doing? Climbing a mountain that doesn't end. Well, some point you just stop, right? Oh, this looks like a good place to sit, <laughs> right? That's the one thing that human beings need. They need the struggle. Sure, talked about the Dostoevsky thing from Notes from the Underground, but there's also got to be a shining city on the hill. Every Ideology, every uh, religion has it. You have to have a goal. You have to have something that you're trying to reach. The propaganda material is unreachable. People don't want to hear it. I understand that. I'm not deluding myself into believing that this material is anything anyone wants to hear. Very few people are going to be open to hearing it. It sounds like I'm attacking them individually, and sometimes with my language. Some of that's my fault, but... It's the truth. So what's the point? I've asked myself that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I am not Mr. Congeniality. I am not Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt, I admire this man because of what he does, but more because, or maybe even even more, I don't know, but the way he does it, his tone, the way that he can, I just can't do that. That's not who I am. So what's the point, right? There's lack of hopelessness. There's a lack of hopelessness. I wish there was a lack of hopelessness. There's a lack of hope. So the thoughts have been to, yeah, well, why not just, why not just lean into the anti, anti-woke shit? Just lean into it. And I have, increasingly, over the last three years. It's sort of taken on, I, I haven't even consciously, well, kind of, I guess I have here and there, but whether I consciously decide to or not, it's kind of where that stuff tends to head. Because that's the immediate threat that I see right now. When I think about American values, liberal values, the classical liberal, not today's, you know, performative liberals, liberal values, free speech, freedom of thought, free press, freedom to dissent, the freedom not to believe. <laughs> and then I started thinking of my own self-interest being a straight white male. I, I just don't understand. I don't have kids. I never spawned. Thankfully, I always say. But if I had, I don't understand how woke white people with children, especially little boys, can follow this shit. It's basically what you're saying when you say that all white people are oppressors is you're saying your little boy, your child, is you, you, oh my God, you hatched a white racist oppressor. You're putting that thought into that child's head. in someone who's well-versed in Emotional torment. Psychological torment. How can you do that? How can you do that to your own kid? How can you handicap, hamstring your own child or work to hamstring your own child socially, economically? How? For a cult. This is where the Westboro Baptist Church comparisons come in. Sorry, that was a tangent. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. uh, I didn't want to admit that an anti-propaganda campaign, you know, talking about propaganda, fighting propaganda, I did not want to admit that that was futile. I misguidedly believed in reason. That the people, well, the people are rational by default. I believed that for a long time. I believed people wanted the truth. That's been obliterated. Jacques Ellul showed me that first, than uh, others that I found. (laughs) Other people who were not selling an ideology and not pandering to the wisdom of the herd. I got a video back there on the wisdom of the herd. In a nutshell, everybody thinks people are stupid. Everybody's out. People are so dumb. Some people are just so stupid. Oh my God, people are just dumb. But somehow, there's a philosophy out there that you put all of those people into a group, into a herd, into a flock. And somehow, despite the fact that everybody knows mobs are stupid, <laughs> somehow, the people, when congealed together, become wise. Really? Do they? Anyway, I found a bunch of people We're not selling the political scripture. We're not trying to preach a doctrine. We're not trying to lure people toward that utopian democratic bullshit. Most of them were 100 years ago. Very few people that I read. I do read contemporary people, but most of the people that I'm getting this stuff from, I got, they're from, yeah, a lot of them are from 100 years ago. Some a little longer than that. But these are people who experienced, especially with Lippmann, Mencken, and uh, even Bernays, and to an extent, there these are people who experienced uh, technological changes in their society, rapid changes in their society and saw what it did to people. The effects haven't changed. It's just the technology and the and maybe the intensity. But the effects haven't. and And a lot of the stuff that Lippmann wrote been prophetic, history repeating itself. <laughs> I'm sure many, if not most of you, have seen The Matrix, right? Keanu Reeves? Now, in that movie, the Nebuchadnezzar was based in a place called the Desert of the Real. Outside of the Matrix, this was the real organic world, right? That's where this little ship was flying around and they were doing all of their their work. Personally, I call our next step. If there's any hope with the anti-propaganda campaign, I call the next step for us. The desert of the why. This is where everything goes negative. And this is where the truth lies. It doesn't lie wrapped in happy thoughts and glitter. The why is dark, it's ugly, it's depressing, and it's an indictment of the species. You, me, all of us. Not exempting myself from this at all. The why is also what I call the unsaid. The unpleasant things no one wants to hear. I just touched on this. It's left unsaid because no one wants to hear it. Everybody has something to sell. Everybody is trying to either make more money or increase their status, whatever. Instinctually, instinctively, they know. No one wants to hear this stuff, so it goes unsaid. They don't want to piss anybody off. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want them to click away. They want people to like them. I don't care what anybody... Really? I call it the unsaid. Why Tristan Harris chose to blame technology, yet in the next breath still thinks technology is the answer. Like failed socialist experiments, just a matter of finding the right kind. Technology is just not being done the right way. Maybe he's right. It can help a little bit, I guess, maybe. I don't know. We're not putting that genie back in the bottle. And let me, let me also clarify, I'm not advocating that we do. I'm not... A Luddite. Not an anti-tech warrior. But technology's here. It's here to stay. I like it myself. The problem is we're not aware of what it's doing to us. Jonathan Haidt is closer to the truth. He is closer to getting at the core of what this stuff is doing. I don't know if he's closer. But he's more realistic, I think. Both well, Tristan Harris, the Center for Humane Technology and uh, History's Parade of Failed Socialists, Communists have one thing in common, choosing to ignore human nature. There's the one thing I don't like about Tristan. I think it's the biggest thing I I, I don't like about that organization. They choose to ignore human nature and blame, they either blame technology, blame improper technology, or they think technology can fix it. This is where they remind me of communists. Communism being the technology itself. They can fix it. They think that if they just apply it correctly while ignoring human nature, that everything can be fixed. Bullshit. This technology and human nature are gasoline and a spark. But again, we're not putting this back in the bottle. We're going to have to figure out how to adapt. We're going to have to figure out how to integrate it, how to keep it from doing too much damage, how to live with it. It's kind of like climate change, right? You can you can sit there in your in the clouds and in your utopian dreamland and think oh we're gonna drop the carbon and we're gonna fix all this and they're gonna create a garden of Eden here blah 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 no we're not not a climate denier not at all I believe it I believe most of pretty much everything I hear I, you know there's some <laughs> uh, pandering exploitation in there as well but I, I believe that the climate is probably changing and, and there are dire consequences so they're coming we're not stopping them. Until you can get China and India and every other industrialized nation to do a lot more, why should we change our lives for nothing? The changes are coming. We'll adapt. And if we don't adapt, we'll do what every other creature throughout the evolutionary history of this damn planet has done when their environment has changed and they didn't adapt. We'll go away. This is where I want to see the environmentalists go. Adaptations. How will we handle the rising sea waters? Instead of preaching, pissing, and moaning about light bulbs. Changing light bulbs and cows and how much meat people, we're, nobody's changing that. You can do about it. Now that you know what's happening, how are you going to mitigate the effects? How are we going to adapt to the effects of this? And then I'm on board. But Preaching and preening and whining and crying. Self-righteous farts, do they do more damage than cow farts. Ignoring human nature. I got the impression that Tristan Harris never even had the thought that, hey, maybe the problem is we, the people. Maybe the technology is fine. Technology is inanimate. can't be evil, right? Maybe the people are broken. Maybe the people are defective and corrupt. Now, to be fair, Tristan Harris, incredibly smart, far smarter than I am. And if he has thought that, if he has thought that it's the people, Being smarter than I am, he wouldn't say it. He would never go there. Because he knows the reaction he'll get. I talked about Bernays, Edward Bernays, back in the 1920s with the elites. This panel of propagandists... These benign and benevolent, kindly altruistic panel of people who would craft policy and they'd, they'd find the way forward, they'd guide the way forward, and they would turn things over to the propagandist, who would go out, I'm sorry, the public relations people, who would go out and dictate proper thought via propaganda to the public, manufacturing opinion, manufacturing consent, Right? Talked about him, Walter Lippman, H.L. Mencken. It's fantastic down this line uh, when you're, you're talking about the people. Ah, it's beautiful. To some degree, they all realized how inept, really inept. Understandably so, to a degree, but inept nonetheless. It's not really a slur. If you're not trained and you don't have any expertise and you go in and try to do brain surgery, you're going to pr- prove yourself to be an inept neurologist. They all came to realize this at some point, that the, the population, the populace, is inept. Far from the, the, the wise herd, the wise people, that utopian Democrats, the philosophy, not the party, assume that we are. But this opens a Pandora's box. I mean, that's also part of the unsaid. Ignorant herds stampede and guillotine their betters. If you get a chance to read H.L. Mencken, just observe and wonder how he uses that phrase, the betters. It's great. <laughs> Listen to the Escaping the Cave podcast. Tanzilax pod Hi there. I'm your friendly host, Todd. Tears for Fears, man. Oh, I don't do these uh, music bumps very often anymore, but I love this song. Love loved this song when I was a kid. I was probably 13, 14 years old. Tears for Fears big back then. Everybody Wants to Rule the World, huh? It's a great one. Got some deeper cuts that are pretty good too, but... I remember when I was a teenager, I couldn't tell anybody that I liked this song. It's like all my friends were like listening to Metallica. <laughs> it was really weird. And some of that tribalism bullshit, right? That pressure we put on each other you start you learn it as a kid i can't like that what are you gay it's a great song This is my four-leaf clover, right? This is my four-leaf clover. You know the thing about that is you learn those things when you're, you're, I don't know, your little clicks start forming when you're, I don't know, elementary or middle school or whatever it is. And I always thought that people would grow out of them. Oh my ass! I am 52 years old. I still know people that'll want to call me the fag word. I tell them that I like Tears for Fears. I guess that works with... Sure. Wow. Funny how that popped up. Maybe that helps with the ideological silos that we live in. Maybe we just continue that. Maybe we take that whole application and apply it to ideology. How can you be a liberal who thinks abortion is murder? You like having your, uh, you know, Metallica friends and telling them you like Tears for Fears. How could you be a liberal and tell them you support the Second Amendment? I mean, you could, but uh, they won't call you the F.A.G. word these days. They can't. They're going to shame you a little bit. That's for sure. You keep it to yourself. You won't stand up. Maybe this is what's going on with wokeism these days, huh? That clickism. You can't be seen thinking another way or liking something that's uncool to your group. Yeah, we never outgrow grow that shit. Talk about the cliques of high school, middle school. Make those cliques last throughout our lives in some way, shape, or fashion. I haven't hit my 60s or 70s as of yet. (laughs) I'm not really looking forward to that, but I wonder if they go away at that point. I mean, I feel a little bit less. I mean, 15 years ago, I'd never say this on a podcast, right? Especially a podcast that I know some of my friends listen to. But if you think I'm the FAG word because I like tears for fears, I think you know what you can do. Incidentally, the FAG word needs to be liberated. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. Sorry, I missed that word. (laughs) A little housekeeping here. I'm talking about Bernays, Lippman, and Mencken and how they're, you know, preaching the gospel of how inept the uh, populace is, how unwise the herd really is, and how it needs, you know, guidance. Longtime listeners will notice a bit of a discrepancy here, maybe an inconsistency. In my views on the Second Amendment, and I am legitimately confused about this. The Second Amendment, I'm sorry, the First Amendment. Free speech is what I'm talking about. A couple of years ago, I was talking about how social media and the informational anarchy of the digital age, data overload, not being able to tell what's true, what isn't, was going to usher in social media censorship. Yes, they do call me Tanstradamus every now and then, and that's why. It was obvious This was coming. There's going to be a crackdown on free speech. The informational anarchy that we were awash in. Because informational anarchy, when you cannot tell truth from falsehood, you do not remain free. And one of the reasons you may lose your freedom is because unrest, discord, gets to the point where there has to be a crackdown. And eventually, the powers that be, the gatekeepers, will return. That's what I was saying a few years ago. And a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I said that I kind of supported that. That there needs to be gatekeepers. I mean, if I'm going to say all of this stuff about people, how they're lost, they can't sort through the data overload, they cannot even get from the lower rung data to information, let alone knowledge and wisdom, that there probably will have to be gatekeepers in place. Now, as we sit here on August 7th, 2023, I am a free speech absolutist. I don't know how to reconcile this. Other than to say that I think part of my problem, part of my uh, cognitive dissonance here has been triggered by the woke flake surge of the last four or five years. The crackdown on social media and in information, disinformation, and what's being called disinformation, improper speech, hate speech, oh, you're being a bully, you're hurting feelings. All of the stuff that's arisen, particularly since 2018, 2019, especially since George Floyd, though, right? The trans cult influx. You can't disagree. You can't, you know, there's legislation here in Michigan that's trying to make it a crime to misgender someone because they might feel threatened. Feel, feel threatened, not be threatened feel threatened, a subjective term, a subjective feeling that anybody can vote anytime They want to criminalize that. It's shit like this that's made me a free speech absolutist because when you start tailoring, crafting, filtering, when you start filtering information streams, what people can and cannot say because, oh, you say is truthful or it's not truthful, shit gets inserted into that. We've all heard about legislative writers like a budget, right? Coming through Congress. Well, they add this, they add that. What about truth writers? Acceptable thought writers, speech crime writers, R I D E R S, and W R I T E R S, I guess. The problem with having informational gatekeepers is that then you have to have an arbiter of truth. You have to have someone who sits in a position of power to determine what is truthful and what is not truthful for everyone. And they can insert any horseshit that they want to. Like men give birth. And you are not allowed to challenge that. This DEI stuff. The DEI, the new DEI religion. I I really want to know where this stuff's coming from. I have not mentioned Chris Rufo yet. R-U-F-O? Yeah, if you're into the... Anti-woke stuff, you might have heard that name a few times. It's got a new book out. I have not bought it yet. I've not downloaded it or had it sent here in book form. A little afraid, too. (laughs) But he answers or claims to answer several questions that I've been asking for a really long time. This DEI stuff arrived about the same time as the gatekeepers did, and it's everywhere. But it's solid. It's cohesive. It's consistent. It has a name. It originated somewhere. How did it infect not only government, but corporate institutions, corporate HR departments, everywhere? How? Where did it come from? It came from a very specific place. It's cultural eugenics, social eugenics. And it's part of this new definition or this new determination, this new barometer standard of what's truthful, what isn't, What's disinformation and what isn't? Anything counter to this is unacceptable speech, unacceptable thought. That's what happens when you start, depending upon arbiters of truth. You get speech crime, you get thought crime. But I also still see the other end of this. What's worse, that or informational anarchy where you have no concept of truth? Either way, when a people cannot tell truth from falsehood, They do not remain free. I'm aware of this inconsistency. I'm aware of it. I I get it. I'm working my way through it. But I'm not really 100% comfortable either way. (laughs) One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit more is the uh, the tone of the podcast. And the uh, need I have to tell you the truth. Even though it's almost certainly... Uh, a self-destructive act in this case, because people do not want to hear it. I understand that there are better ways to build a podcast, a better way to build an audience. I could, you know, I have the skill, I have the talent to do this. I'm trained at it. I know how to do this stuff. But this is what I want to do. But I do. I'm not going to lie to you about this stuff. I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass when it comes to how I see propaganda, where it comes from, why it works and the prognosis moving forward. I talked about this in one of the podcasts just last week. Deception. Again, I can tell you stories about where this comes from in in my own head, why I'm so averse to it, why I I, I just cannot stand having smoke blown up my ass. It's manipulative. I did talk about it in those other podcasts. I'm not going to do that. I can't sit here and have that splinter in my own mind when it comes to other people, yet sit here on this microphone in the studio, blow smoke up your ass to manipulate you into liking my podcast and downloading it. The least I can do if I'm going to presume to crack this microphone is to be honest about it. I got to think about this. It really isn't new. Che Guevara had two lives. The first part of his life was chronicled in the motorcycle diaries. And this is the, I think the the guy that a lot of these leftists, a lot of these people who are down prancing around South America with the Che Guevara T-shirts, I think this is the guy that they idolize, a guy that uh, traveled around South America on a motorcycle. A motorcycle broke down, him and uh, uh, his uh, buddy. I forget his name now. Oh, I can see his face. What was his name? Yeah, whatever it was. Anyway, they they traipse around. Uh, South America. They go through, uh, let's see, Argentina, Peru. They went into the Amazon jungle, stayed at a leper colony. It changed his worldview. He saw a lot of suffering. He saw a lot of poverty. He saw the effects of colonization, the mines, and and how they were having a, an adverse effect on not only the native population, but also the indigenous population. He foresaw uniting all of these various peoples together. One mestizo race is what he called it. And Bringing them together to, to prosper in independence. And he took the, the communist track, got involved you know, in Mexico City with Castro, wound up in Cuba, blah, blah, blah. Wound up shot in Bolivia, I think. I really enjoy his biography. I, I like the Che Guevara before he got to Mexico City. I don't agree with his politics, but I, I went to a lot of the same places he did. I sailed the same river that he did. In, you know, If you've seen the movie Motorcycle Diaries, if you haven't seen it, it's really good. I chased Chris McCandless when I was up here hitchhiking, pursued his ghost to a few places, and I did the same thing with Che Guevara in Peru. So I, I have—I feel like I have at least a little bit of a connection with him. And one of the things that I really liked about him, and I read his biography, uh, John Anderson, I think, is the the writer. I read it a couple of times. But the first time I went through it, I think, it was probably 2007, maybe six, long time ago, right? I was in my Howard Zinn phase. So, yeah, Che Guevara, he, he would make sense. And one of the things that I really liked about him, he wouldn't lie. He, had, he made people very uncomfortable, specifically uh, Alberto, whatever his name was, his friend. Because people would ask him questions or he would be in a situation where social convention would say, lie, bullshit these people, grease the social wheels. But he wouldn't do that. He was adamant about telling the truth. There's a scene in the movie where they're staying with this guy in Lima a doctor or something. And they're staying, and they're reading his books, and they're having these these political conversations. But this doctor also was writing a novel. And he asked Alberto and Che to read it while they were there. And then he wanted to know what they thought uh, when they left. And Alberto, his friend, Che's friend, I think I hope that's his name. I may have that wrong. I think it's Alberto. Oh, you're the greatest writer. This is sure to be an instant classic. You're going to be uh, world famous for your literary skills. And then as soon as the doctor in the movie, because he has this reputation, right? As soon he's like, oh, we should go now before Che says anything, trying to pull him off. And he's like, wait a minute. I want to hear what you think. And Che was like, it's unreadable. It's shit. And Alberto's sitting there like, oh, oh, my God. And the doctor looks at him, looks down, looks back up and says, damn you, boy. You're the only one who's bothered to tell me the truth. And of course, Alberto's sitting over here, kind of ashamed. That kind of attitude, because I know, I've long known, that people are inherently deceptive. It is really uncommon, it's very uncommon, to have people tell you the truth in situations where they're expected, for whatever reason, to tell a little white lie. I took that to heart. I took that to heart long before that. I think I took that to heart even when I was working at the radio station in Santa Fe. I told the truth down there straight to the owner's face. <laughs> I wasn't always diplomatic about it. I know that's part of what led me, led to me being shown the door. It's okay. But I also took that attitude out on the road. There was a, a couple of stories in there on the, on the old blog. You can go find this at tanzillax.com. They're still up there. Uh, there's this guy, my very first trip, we talked about Dennis a million times. I mean, I applied that there with Dennis, the cop killer, I told him what I thought. I told him the damn truth. He appreciated it. That same trip, leaving Colorado, I got a ride with a guy into Wyoming. He stops at a bar and he's just being—he's just being an obnoxious shit. And he thought he was being really cool. He was kind of drunk. He was drinking the whole time on the road. And we got to the bar, and I don't remember the exact specifics right now, uh, but it is on the uh, in the blog on the website Tanzalex.com. This would be from 2008, probably in May. And I said, I just told him, you're kind of acting like a dick. What are you doing? And he just took him back because I'm riding with this guy. He's giving me a ride. I'm, I'm like this supposedly this submissive hitchhiker who's, you know, you've got to be a dick. He's like, whoa. And something happened. He respected that. He respected that. I wasn't mean about it. I wasn't like yelling. I wasn't making a dick out of him in front of everybody at this bar. But I was like, stop it. I ain't being an asshole. <laughs> and he, something happened. And the guy treated me with more respect the rest of that ride. In fact, he took me another, I don't know, 100, 200 miles down I-80 into Rollins and gave me money. He, he made me take money from him after he bought me food. And this was after I told him exactly what I thought when the normal response in that situation was would be to flatter the guy because he's giving me a ride and I want to stay in the truck. There are multiple examples of this. Happened when I was working at the Carney Outfit. This was before I was traveling. This is 2008, still, and I was I was a carny for a couple of weeks. That story's up there too. But I there was a bully that was in this carny group, and we're sitting outside of the trailers one night. I got my little group of friends. I've been there a few days. I, I'd made some friends, and I basically told him to go fuck himself. You know, he was sort of presenting himself as being in a position of authority with this carny group. He really wasn't. I knew he wasn't. I said, was like, go no, fuck yourself, Timmy. I don't like you. The look around me, the the eyes, I could feel them just like, whoa, yes, because somebody decided to tell the truth instead of keeping the peace. I think that began when I read uh, the story about Guevara and how he would not lie to people to save their feelings. He told the truth when the truth needed to be told or when he was asked his opinion. He gave his honest opinion. He didn't bullshit people. And Alberto's reaction to that, I mean, it, it really speaks volumes to how society expects you or how people expect you to just bullshit them. But now knowing this, I have to, again, i this is taken too far. It's a cancer. I freely admit that. But knowing that now, now I'm aware of when people do it to me. <clears throat> but I'm not going to do that to you here. I am not going to do that to you on this show. I don't give a fuck if nobody else listens to it. As long as I'm doing this show, I'm going to say what I think, and it's up to you. It's your task. Thank you. It's your task to react to it however you like. It's your choice. It's not my job. It's none of my concern what you think of me. My job is to tell you what I think and what I see. That's all I can do. I can't control your reaction. Here's some stoicism for you. (laughs) But the one thing that I can control is my own thought processes and saying what I think. And if you don't like that or anybody doesn't like that, if they're not being catered to or pandered to, you're free to leave. You're free not to download these damn things. And there's also also the aspect... Well, you did ask my opinion when you downloaded this thing in the first place. (laughs) I'm going to continue to do that as long as I do this podcast. If I don't get any downloads. So, fucking be it. What do you think of them beans, huh? I got through exactly a page and a half of this. And there are, I'm going to say like eight or ten. So I think I have my work cut out for me. I like this. It's sort of a rehash of old material, but not really. Maybe it's updating the premises. I may do this Metacognition and Killing Oz piece. Uh, I have that with the uh, other propaganda material. Let me do that in between the next ones, but I know where I'm going next. TanzillaX.com. That's where you can find all of those uh, old blog posts from the traveling days. some good stuff in there. Really good stuff. Lots of fun. Escape of the cave.com is still up there. I don't know why I'm mentioning it because I'm not doing anything with it. Tonsil X at Substack. That's where you want to go. There is a Facebook page. There's absolutely no Twitter, no other social media of any kind other than YouTube. That's sporadic. Hmm. Look for another podcast soon. I have a roadmap. Till then.